The following program is sponsored by Friends of Life Outreach International. Do we believe, A, that there's a God? And if so, do we believe that He cares and that He sees? And then finally, if we do, are we willing to invite Him into this? And I found so many, like myself, just running to other means for resolution in the conflict, but not actually inviting God in the middle of the mess. Sheila Walsh spends Wednesdays in the Word with author and speaker Rebecca Lyons. You can't understand freedom until you even understand your captivity. Discovering you are free, next. Sheila Walsh, welcome to Wednesdays in the Word. Thanks so much for being with me. Today, I want us to look at what does it really mean to be free? You know, as believers, we think, well, yeah, we are free in Christ, but, but how many of us were really honest think, you know, I don't feel very free. It's interesting to me in the, the book, book of Galatians, Paul writes this. This is Galatians 5, 1. So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. He goes on to say this, for you've been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. I love that. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I'm thrilled today to be able to introduce a guest on Wednesdays in the Word. I, I have to say that I have been personally impacted by um, my guest and by her book. So please, would you welcome with me, Rebecca Lyons. Thank, Thank you. you so <laughs> Thank you, much girl. for being with us. Your book, I love the subtitle. Your book is called, You Are Free, Be Who You Already Are. How did you come up with that right? subtitle? It's a little antagonistic, isn't it? I love it. it. <laughs> Nothing like a good bit of antagonism. <laughs> Uh, well, the idea is obviously that Christ has done the work. It's already done, right? And yep. we're kind of sitting here in our metaphorical jail cells going like, I don't know if I buy, <laughs> if I buy that, you know? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes what our lives look like every day, the day in and day out, feels very enslaved. Yeah. Or we're not even aware of our captivity often. We just, we're tired. We don't have energy. We can't wait for our kids to take a nap, you know? <laughs> we're like, what will we get on the table? And we're kind of kind of hobbling through life, yeah. not really comprehending the freedom that's already available to us. I, when I write, I usually write not so much as an expert. I write about what I'm longing to understand. Right. And I wondered about you. Has your journey to finding freedom, is that a very personal journey for you? Absolutely. You know, I was, I was born Mother's Day church by Wednesday, prayed the sinner's prayer at age five, because I didn't want to burn. I'm not sure how many five-year-olds would. So, yeah, it's, you not, know, it's not a it good a very, option, really. No. It was a very successful evangelistic strategy. <laughs> but I did believe that it was true. I believed that Jesus was the Son of God. I loved Jesus. I grew up memorizing all the verses and going to Awanas and getting the patches, the cubbies, and, you know, whittled cars out of wood and had yellow <laughs> casseroles. I mean, we did it all in church growing up. And... Um, so I wanted to please God, but I also was an achiever and I was a, I realized early on, you know, being the oldest of three girls, I had an older brother adopted, but oldest of three girls, um, 
I, I leaned into striving and perfectionism just naturally. I found that it gave me the attention or the, um, I don't know, approval that I wanted. And so I just did that. And that's, that snuck into church too. And the reason why this message was so powerful for me, I began to write it thinking, Christ has done the work, let's just do this. And I had a lot of bravado, even with that idea, because really when you claim it, I mean, that's a declaration. But I started to write about it and I I was enslaved. I didn't even realize until I got into it, like this is such a big topic and how do we even understand this idea of freedom and what it took for me. um, One day in my journal, I said, Lord, I sense you wanna set a lot of captives free. You know, and at this point I had written my first book and I'm talking to women about calling and purpose and I'd come out of a long season of panic disorder personally and anxiety and depression and I felt like some of the yoke of that had been broken. So I'm like, I'm free. And I was about to get out the the pom-poms. And immediately the Lord is just like, how about we start with you? Yikes. And what I learned in this three-year journey when Jesus like, "If if you're willing, I'd love to take you through all these areas that you don't, you're not living free. It doesn't mean that you're not free, you're not living free. I'm, I, he has set us free, but I didn't realize the places I was in bondage. In some ways you could say the, uh, the outside of my life looked like it had had a rescue, mm-hmm. but the inner healing actually hadn't begun. And I realized soon early on, I was operating from a broken heart. And so I believed the lie that I wasn't worthy of love unless I earned it. Mm-hmm. And that all translated to God. And so I had to, you know, like anything you write, you know this, right? You have to wrestle through it long before <laughs> you're able to, you know, make sense of it on a page. And you can't understand freedom until you even understand your captivity, so. Every single chapter in the book um, spoke to me, but there's so much material here. So I wanted to focus in on just two or three. Okay. One of them um, is you have a chapter called Free to Rest. Yes. And boy, did that just nail me to the wall. Right. Um, And you talk about this interesting habit of mourning pages. What is that? Okay, so Julie Cameron, she's a literary professor in New York City, and she wrote a book called The Artist's Way. And she says that the first 40 minutes after you, you wake, you're most in tune with your subconscious and your natural ego defenses are down. So that's when it's the best time to write. And so she created this thing called, a practice just called morning pages. And it's really just journal, it's, it's a fancy word for journaling. And you can journal three, you know, three pages if you want, you can go longer. But the idea was to not edit yourself, to just almost when you wake up, just make it. And so for me, journaling has always been a dialogue with God. So someone might not have faith and they, I don't know how, who they'd write to, but to me, morning pages was my ongoing dialogue with God. And so it was, it was a prayer. It was a written prayer of confession and, you know, it would get kind of ugly some days and it would be a lament some days. It would be gratitude some days, but it was unbridled. And, you know, I wasn't too worried about grandchildren in a hundred years digging it up. They will think I'm crazy, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. Because in those pages became confession. It became, Jesus started to say, through the writing and through like your, your journal and your scripture and just a quiet house before dawn with a candle and coffee, that became the place where he started to show me some inner wounding and inner need for healing. So some of those prayers even found them, some of those confessions are in the book that came directly from my journal. So like I think about your lifestyle, um, you're, you're out a lot, you're speaking, you're on the road, do you ever get to a place where you think, okay, Lord, my lifestyle is actually 
making what I actually believe difficult to live yes, out. Yes, yes. So we had come from New York to Franklin, right? And one of these things is not like the other. We were in Tribeca <laughs> in downtown yes. Manhattan, and I felt like I was a Hebrews 12 runner, right? I'm like running the race, I'm on the road, I'm speaking, and it was almost like the manifestation of a couple years prior of being quiet and still. But then we moved to Franklin and everyone's like, I sense you're entering a season of rest. And I'm like, I don't wanna rest. I just got running, you know, aren't we supposed to run and lives to, to reach? And and the idea was that um, I felt like I'd tripped in my lane or, you know, been benched or something. And, um, and Jesus wanted me, even in those first couple years in Franklin to say, you might need to get on a plane on Friday, but Monday through Thursday, like I want your full attention. And I would just, I called it my pajama practice. <laughs> I literally sat in my pajamas on the couch with Jesus because there was a lot of quiet that needed to happen to kind of fill me and preserve what I knew was true so that I could speak on a weekend um, with a sense of rooting and grounding. Because that you kind of talk about that in your free to wait um, yeah. chapter. And I, there's a Sarah Grove song uh -huh. that there's a lyric in it that's so... I felt it related to you. She said, the future feels so hard mm. and I want to go back, mm. but the places that used to fit me can't hold the things oh, I've learned. Wow, that's good. And I thought of, you know, mm -hmm. New York felt like you, it felt like your pace yep. and suddenly mm -hmm. you're in Tennessee. Yep. What do, you, what do you mean by being free to wait? Well, when I was in Tennessee for the first six weeks, I had a pity party. You know, I had been, you know, this quote unquote fabulous life in New York, and then I'm back in carpool going to Publix in my minivan. Yep. And, and living I know, the dream. I know. And in, in some ways, it was so arrogant, and it was also um, controlling. Like, God, why are we here? Like, why did we land back here? And um, I remember a friend early those days, she's like, perhaps God's prepared something for you or called something to you called you to something, but he's holding it off for a reason. And I think for me, um, uh, I, I wrestled with him and I, and I, you know, kind of had this dialogue. And one day he just says, um, you cannot see the unknown until you release the known. And, wow. and that was the, the refrain. And I sat in my minivan in the parking lot of Publix and sobbed. And I realized for the first time that I was not letting go of New York. It was a place I found healing and my calling and my voice. And, and I thought my identity was stuck there, that, that the city had done the work and not Jesus had done the work and that he'd be staying up there in my little glass apartment in the sky, but he wouldn't actually be. So he even, he even taught me in that chapter that home is wherever God is. You know, it's, it's, it's a place and not a person. Mm -hmm. It's a person, not a place. Right. And so partly it's just um, me realizing that he calls me to himself and we're on this journey yeah. and we need to be nimble and follow him, whatever that looks like. And we'll be home wherever we are. <laughs> One of the chapters that I found, um, you're very vulnerable. When you talk about free to be weak, Mm. And you talk about your darling son, Kate, yes, who has yes. Down syndrome, who has quite an independent streak oh and likes goodness. to go wandering. I wonder where he gets that from. <laughs> <laughs> he likes to wander. Let's just put it mildly. He likes to wander. And from his earliest days, I think it, it, the first story I tell in the book is when he... I think at four or five, he, he goes out in our neighborhood in a diaper and leaves all the doors open and nothing. It's 23 degrees in December. And... Um, 
a neighbor brought him home about 45 minutes later, but you can imagine the panic. And, and then we go to New York and he runs off in Central Park the first two weeks we're there and the, all these students from Boston College are helping us find him. And then he ran off in Queens. Yes, guys. <laughs> I almost was like, I don't know if I should be writing all this in the book <laughs> because he's never lost in his mind. He's mm -hmm. just like, in Queens he was looking for a Coke and he wound up at like a, like a corner market and came out with a Coke and he just said Coke and they gave it to him. They didn't even make him pay. They're like, give the boy what he wants. But um, yeah, the, the anxiety in those moments where I got used to having to always be on if he were to wander off and he's not very verbal. I mean, he's a little verbal. He's 16 now. Um, but but it was important that we would know where he is, especially in New York, obviously, Gosh. right? <laughs> what have you learned through Kate? Oh my goodness, you know, I talk about Kate's birth in Free to Grieve mm -hmm. and how, you know, we got the diagnosis when he was five days old and I was in the shower and I collapsed on the floor and I learned what lament or travailing prayer really was. The spirit grieved for me, with me in that day. And I felt even him lifting the grief off of me while I was shedding it in buckets, like I couldn't get it out fast enough. And I understood if you cannot grieve, you cannot be comforted for the first time there in that moment that, that that's what Jesus did on the cross. He took all our everything upon himself so that we could be free, right? Um, but we carry it thinking we have to hold it. And he's like, no. So with him, with him that day, you know, I entered a new world at 26. I mean, it was a false negative even. So the chances of, I, I had no idea. Um, and what I can tell you now, as I remember telling a friend early that first year, um, we're praying for Cade to be whole. And, and my friend said, well, perhaps your version of wholeness and God's look different. Mm -hmm. Yikes. I didn't really like her at that no, point I when she said that. Either. But here we are 16 years later and I can tell I can tell anyone and everyone that I feel the most at home with Cade, the most peace with Cade, the most accepted by Cade. And that's a treasure. I mean, obviously, you know, he's radically changed my life. <laughs> you have in in your chapter free to ask, you have this DL Moody quote that I love. You say you quote him saying, some people think God does not like to be troubled with our constant coming and asking. The way to trouble God is not to come at all. Right. Wow. The conviction for me on the free to ask chapter, and you'll, you know, if you read it, you know, it gets, gets a little dicey because it's not an easy topic to approach. Yeah. Um, but when I said, rescue me, deliver me, I cannot do this without you. With panic disorder years prior, mm -hmm. my body stopped in the middle of a panic attack and they were done. And so I didn't have language for that, you know, I'm, I just didn't grow up like having those kind of conversations and I didn't even use the healing word for a couple years. And then I thought of Revelation 12, 11, where the enemy is bound by two things. It's Christ's blood and your story. And I thought, and Jesus is like, well, I did my part. <laughs> <laughs> Over to you, girl. <laughs> it's all you, Mike's to you. And I, and I started inviting that um, narrative into these talks I would give on anxiety and depression because I thought, do we believe A, that there's a God? And if so, do we believe that he cares and that he sees? And then finally, if we do, are we willing to invite him into this? And I found so many like myself just running to other means for resolution in the conflict, but not actually inviting God in the middle of the mess. How did you feel prompted to ask for the gift of healing? That's a big, scary ask. I know, you know, and that's that's hard to write about because the spirit is wacky, right? You know, <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. Um, 
I grew up fundamental Baptist, so I don't have even the right language for all this. Yeah. You know, I, I remember that day very vividly. I was praying to God, you know, it was kind of morning pages gone rogue, right? You know, everyone had left for the day and I'm just praying on my, in my pajamas because, you know, pajama practice. And I was just talking to the Lord and just lifting my voice to him. And, and all of a sudden I said, I, I sense you want me to ask, like press into this topic of healing. And the minute I said that, my, I started weeping like uncontrollably in these like travailing um, sobs that I recognized as a little cookie pants, you know, like I just didn't know. And so I just got down on my knees and I just said, God, if I don't, cause I had prayed the same thing when Cade was five weeks old on an airplane. I said, I don't want to say no to anything you want to pour out. And if, if you want, Whatever the, the, the gifts of the spirit are, I don't want to resist any of those. And I don't, I'm not, I don't say I understand them all, but I certainly don't want to say you're not capable. <laughs> so I just opened up even then. And I remember um, receiving a prayer language when Kay was five weeks old on an airplane. Wow. And, you know, and so even then it was just kind of like, I didn't know what to do with that. But I just like, Lord, it's all yours. Um, and so that day it was the same thing. It was just like, okay, here we go. And he prompted me to just press into that idea. And, and even with people, I approach it very sl slowly and just like, if you want prayer, I'm not promising anything, but I'd love to pray with you. You know, that's, I think how, we're, we're, we're resp not responsible for the healing. We're responsible for the asking. And if anything, I just want to encourage more people to invite him in. You, um, you said that confession is the gateway to freedom. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, in the Free to Confess chapter, it's early in the book, it's early in this journey. It's when the Lord said, hey, Rebecca, how about we start with you? It was where I, he revealed to me for the first time, because I needed the approval of man, you know, um, so much when I started speaking and writing. I don't know. I, I never had needed that to that degree. But then all of a sudden you, you take on a little bit of a public um, voice yeah. and then you're just making sure everyone likes you and did you say it right and will that get tweeted wrong and will I be misunderstood and that's by Twitter right I know and it never mattered to me and then all of a sudden um, I heard you know blessed Ann Voskamp say those who keep score in life just want to know that they count and when you do what you do for an audience of one you always know that you count yeah yeah Yikes, I was eating yeah. a cheeseburger in a dark hotel room it was not a pretty moment and I was so convicted by those words and I said God why do I want to know that I count and he's like you matter to me is that enough and I said no and the confession of that the reason why I say confession is the gateway to freedom is the confession of that is when I broke and I said, heal my broken heart and set me free. Wow. And I invited him from then on into all these other places. There's so much more in Rebecca's book and I'm going to let you know in a couple of minutes how to get hold of it. Literally chapter by chapter, it is, it is a life-changing read. But I had a pretty life-changing experience um, recently where I got to go to those who are hungry for more than just um, a good conversation or a good book, but literally hungry for the very thing they need to survive. Um, it was an experience that impacted me greatly. <sighs> Let me maybe watch this with me and you'll see what I mean. So I woke up this morning in this village. Um, it's my first time in Angola. And I honestly don't know what I expected, but I didn't expect what I experienced. I didn't expect to see a child who is a year and five months old and weighs six pounds. I mean, how does a child like that even survive? 
think one of the things that maybe surprised me most was the profound affinity I felt with the moms. If you're a mom, all you want is for your child to be healthy. You want to be able to put a meal on the table at night and know that your children go to bed with a full tummy. But here I've seen what the ravages of malnutrition do. You know, and this morning, I'm sitting in my tent and, and I open my Bible. I'm just kind of doing one of those, going through the Bible in a year. And here's what I read, Isaiah 58. Share your food with the hungry. Give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them. Then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Then when you call, the Lord will answer, yes, I'm here. He'll quickly reply, feed the hungry, help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness and the darkness around you will be as bright as noon. Mission feeding is not some great idea we came up with. It's simply living out the gospel of Christ. And we put one simple bowl of food into the hands of these children in Africa. It changes their lives forever. Thousands and thousands and thousands of lives, one life at a time. That night, um, the first time that I was in the malnutrition clinic and we um, went back to where we were staying and I literally lay in my bed and sobbed as I watched a mom bring in a baby that just struggled to just take a breath. And somebody said to me, well, don't you think women in Africa almost get used to that? There's not a mother on this planet who will ever get used to watching their child suffer and starve to death. You know, I held that woman as she sobbed in my arms. She was my sister. I just happened to be born in Scotland. She just happened to be born in Angola. But here's the thing, I've seen the difference that we can make. This is not hopeless. Now at the moment, the situation in Angola is terrible. The situation in Sudan is desperate. There is a famine going on there at the moment. And here's what's nuts to me. Half of us here in the Western world are on diets because we eat too much. And just across the water are women who love Jesus, who love their children, and all they want to be able to do is to give their son or their daughter one meal a day. And we can do it. What we're doing at the moment is we're feeding 400,000 children in different villages in Africa. But at every village that I went to, and I got the privilege of pouring out this beautiful, nutritious meal. It looks kind of like oatmeal, but it's full of vitamins and minerals. One bowl begins the process of going from death to life for these kids. But here's what the people we work with in Africa said, please don't stop, please don't stop. Because you know, the lines are long and we never want the line to be longer than the food we have. So we need to keep this up. They're literally, they're counting on us. And it's so doable, just $30, you're gonna feed three children, $50 feeds five, $100 feeds 10 children. The famine around the world is horrible, but we as the body of Christ, we are not supposed to be sitting here till Jesus gets us out of here. We are here at this time for a purpose. We are here for such a time as this. We are the answer to their prayers. 
You know, it's one thing to sit with a mom in a malnutrition clinic and pray with her. But now I have the responsibility to come home and say, let's you and I be the answer to our prayer. So please do something. If we all do something, we can change it. So would you go to your phone, call that number on your screen, or you can go to lifetoday.org. But even $30, you know I mean? That's nothing. We can do that. Cut one thing out of your week and we can change the life. $30 feeds three children. So please, would you go to your phone now and do something in Jesus' name. In impoverished and even now famine-stricken areas of Africa, children are suffering. The need is great, and without food, they face death by starvation. Life's Mission Feeding Program is ready. With your support, we're able to feed and care for children in famine areas of Sudan, as well as Angola and Mozambique. With all of our previous reserves gone and Mission Feeding facing the worst drought and food shortage in years, we urgently need to replenish our food supplies to reach 400,000 children counting on us. Your life-saving gift of $30, $50, or $100 will help feed and care for three, five, or 10 children for the next three months. Please also consider a special gift of $1,400 to help sponsor a school and help feed 140 children for three full months. With your gift of any amount, we'll send you my Daily Word devotional. This box set of four seasonal devotionals will help you read, reflect, and renew yourself through God's Word with space to journal your thoughts and reflect each day. With your gift of $100 or more, you'll also receive Carrie Job's newest music project, The Garden, along with the Story Behind the Garden companion DVD. And finally, with your gift of $1,000 or more, be sure to request Determined Eagle, our 2017 commemorative bronze sculpture. Please call, write, or go online today and make your gift of life to help feed and care for hungry children. Why don't you help give these children a future? Why don't every one of you, and some of you on fixed income, and you know what? You will likely be the first one to respond. I want it to be where every single person watching me coming to you from Southern Africa, a place in Mozambique that was absolutely hopeless during the war. But we were here all through the war feeding, beginning 20 years ago. Now they're in school. They need a future. I'm asking that every person in every country around the world, you're watching today to give children like this a future, not just save them from death, because we're going to do that in crisis areas, but we're going to give them the nutrition to learn. They want to learn. They're here at school. We're going to give them the support so they've got a bright future. Would you right now go to the phone or go online and respond and make the best gift you can possibly make? Please do it. Don't turn away. Do what you can to help. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We can do this. We can do this. And for any gift at all, we will send you Rebecca's book, You Are Free. Honestly, it's brilliant. It really, really impacted me. For a gift of $100, we will send you this awesome new CD and DVD by Carrie Job. I've been listening to my car. It's phenomenal. Rebecca, thank you so much thank for you. who you are, for how you write. Um, so grateful that you've been with us. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. What a joy. We love you. You're a beautiful <laughs> you. girl. Thanks so much for being with us. And we'll see you next time on Wednesdays in the Word.
they didn't think he would live out the next couple of hours. Tomorrow, hear how Keith Moore and his family grew closer to God through the supernatural healing of his brother. Life Today is made possible by the supporters of Life Outreach International. Your gift will be used exclusively for the exempt purposes of life. The ministry features specific outreaches as examples of the programs it supports and conducts. Gifts are considered to be without restriction as to use unless explicitly stipulated by the donor. The ministry is a member of the ECFA.